There we go. Good morning. Morning. Let me, yeah, if nothing else, we'll just do that the whole service. Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. If you're in your scripture journal, it's page 18 on that. John chapter 3. We're continuing our study through the book of John. While you're turning there, I have a question. Has anyone ever heard of the 1040 window? If you've heard of the, if you've heard of the 1040 window, raise your hand for me, okay? All right, here's what the 1040 window is. The 1040 window describes the regions from West Africa to Eastern Asia located between the 10 and the 40 degrees north of the equator. And it is purported to have the highest level of socioeconomic challenges and the least access to the Christian message. According to to an article published just yesterday by the Gospel Coalition, around the, around the world, more than 260 million Christians, one of every eight believers, experience high levels of persecution just for following Jesus. From Open Door Ministries, which is a ministry that tracks that, the, the, that info and compiles all that research, it says, During the 2020 World Watch List reporting period, in the top 50 countries, a total of 9,488 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 3,711 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. And 2,983 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. On average, that is eight Christians killed every day for their faith. Now, why do I share that statistic as we're going through the book of John? Because I believe that despite these facts, the Western church continues to grow more and more lethargic every day. If we're not careful... We can become so separated, and in the society that we live in today, it is easy for us to separate ourselves from those things and wake up every day with the mindset and with our selfishness and self-centeredness on full display, and I believe it's killing us. So what is our only hope? Our hope is found exactly in the text that we're looking at this morning, and that is John chapter 3, verse 30, where he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. That's our takeaway this morning. Is we, it's, I'm going to flip it because we're going to talk about it a little bit. We're going to talk about it in the opposite order there. Our takeaway this morning is simply exactly what Scripture proclaims, that I must decrease, and Jesus must increase. Our whole heartbeat, what we're looking at this morning, is to solidify the calling that I must decrease and Jesus has to increase if we're going to see the gospel do great things in our own area, in our own backyard. Here's the, here's the interesting thing. In all those areas, as it being the least accessible place for the Christian message, can I, check, can I tell you that that is where the church is growing the fastest, and growing the most. Even with all, when we, what we would look at and say, there's no possible way that this is going to work, and there's no possible way that the church could be growing, it is flourishing and growing day after day after day. In John chapter 3, 
we, we see a story, we see an interaction with John the Baptist, and it's our last interaction with John the Baptist. After this, he fades off of the scene. And beginning in verse 22, we, we see, and we're going, to be, we're going to begin unpacking this takeaway that we have to decrease, that we must decrease, and Jesus must increase. Verse 22 says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going over to see him. So here's what's happening. There's a time period in Scripture where Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's ministries overlap. And they're overlapping and they're doing the same work. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're proclaiming repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what happens is John begins to see his ministry begin to diminish. And a debate rises up about purification again. And the, and the disciples eventually come to John. And John's disciples say, point this out to them. They point out what's happening. John's crowd is diminishing while Jesus' crowd is growing. And they say, look, look at verse 25. It says, now a discussion arose between some of, John, of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they, John's disciples, came to John and said to him, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going over there. Now remember what had happened. Remember that these disciples, they heard John's testimony. They've been following John. They saw Jesus. They saw the works. that They've heard about the signs that Jesus was doing. And though they had been disciples of John and heard his declaration of who Jesus was, they still had the crazy audacity to be jealous of Jesus when they realized he was encroaching on their turf. They even point out in verse 26, He who was with you, Rabbi. This is the only, the only other time someone is referred to Rabbi in this gospel other besides Jesus. They go to him and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. He, you, you made this guy, John. You came and proclaimed the message. You're the one that set him up. You promoted him and this is how he repays you? What are you going to do about it? I love John's response. And it's the first insight to our takeaway. John's response is simply this. I must decrease in importance. I must decrease in importance. If we are called, if, if, if the command for us is that I must decrease and Jesus must increase, then we have to begin with the fact that we are called to decrease in importance. What does John say? Look at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive any, even one thing, unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. The one who has the, bri- has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Why? Because he must increase and I must decrease. We are called to decrease in importance. What does John say? What does he tell us? He says, like they say, what are you going to do about this guy that is causing all these problems? What are you going to do about this? And he simply says, I'm going to get out of the way and I'm going to let Jesus do his thing. I'm going to step aside and get out of the way. First off, what does he say? It wasn't his ministry to begin with. He says in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John's ministry was not John's ministry. It was the message, it was the mess, it was the ministry given to John by God himself. And it was one of those things, it was it was John coming to the point where he understood that I have nothing except what God has given me. I have absolutely nothing except what God has given me. Can I tell you one thing? You don't own anything. You own nothing. You say, wait a minute, Henry. No, I own, I own. No, you own nothing. Everything we have, everything we are, everything we ever aspire to be is only given to us by the grace and the mercy of God. Do you realize even the very breath that we take right now in this room is a gift from God himself? See, it's hard for us to understand that. It's hard for us to understand if we've never reached that point of realizing that we have nothing. You know what I'm inspired by? You know what I'm encouraged by? Is the Sundays that I get a chance to look over at these ladies who have possibly hit in that place and said, I have nothing. It's the most beautiful and best place you could ever be, ladies. Jesus is enough. And I believe the church needs to get that point very clear that we are not that important. Jesus is is that important. What does Paul say to the church in Corinth? Look at verse look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7. I encourage you write that verse down in your scripture journal. You can go back and look at it later. It says, "For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you if then you received it, why do you boast as as if you did not receive it?" If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here's what Paul's saying. Everything that you have, he says, what do you have that you didn't receive, that you weren't given? Everything that you have, if, you, if, you, if you've received it, then guess what? There's no reason to boast because you didn't do anything to get that. And the greatest picture of that is, guess what? Our picture of our salvation. It is by grace alone through faith alone, so that what? No man can boast. And John is saying, look, I, this is not my ministry. This is not my life. This is Jesus' time. I need to step aside. John reminds them of their own testimony and points out that he never meant to be the Christ. He was never meant to be their Savior, the Messiah. 
he tells them, look at verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness. Y'all have said it to me. I believe John the Baptist was Southern, right? Y'all have said it to me. Y'all told me that I wasn't. Y'all bore witness that I told everyone I was not the Christ. He says, remember what I said. Remember what John, the author, the disciple said at the beginning in John chapter 1, verse 8. He says, talking of John the Baptist, he says, He was not the light, but came what? To bear witness about the light. He came to bear witness about the light. The light is the, is the source that gives hope. The light is the one that makes a difference. The lampstand, guess what? Its purpose is simple. The lamp's purpose is simply give a platform for the light to shine. You take light, the light bulb out of a lamp, guess what? You have nothing. Maybe it's a good-looking lamp, but guess what? It has no purpose. And John the Baptist says, look, I, this is not my ministry. This is not what I've come to do. I received this from him. It's only by his grace. It, I, I told y'all, y'all heard it. I am not the Christ. Then he paints this beautiful picture by referring to the wedding. He says in verse 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This picture of Christ and the church being married is dominant throughout Scripture. Look at Hosea chapter 2. Beginning in verse 19, it says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In verse 23, he says, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I shall say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say to me, you are my God. God has called the church his bride. And it's the most beautiful picture we could ever get. In fact, Paul uses this illustration even in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ, catch this, as Christ is the head of the church. His body and of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon on marriage, I'm not getting into that just yet. But can I tell you, there is a calling, and the picture, the greater picture, is not the picture and the calling of how wives relate to husbands and how husbands relate to wives. The greatest picture is for us to see the proper relationship of the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the most powerful and the strongest relationship ever displayed in Scripture to show us and to, and to challenge and encourage us on how we now relate to one another. What does it say? It says, as Christ is the head of the church, what? And is himself its Savior. 
Christ died for the church. Christ loved the church. Christ gave himself. And if we were teaching on marriage, I would say, husbands, don't be sitting there elbowing your wives just yet, because guess what? They have a simple command of submitting to the husband. Guess what we got to do? We have to be Jesus to them. We have to paint the picture. He says, husbands, love your wives. How? How do we love our wives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus came to do. Why does John say, I can step aside? Because John says, I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom, and he has come to redeem his bride. And there is absolutely nothing that's going to get in the way. There is nothing that could stop the work of God, and there's nothing that can stop the work of God in our lives if we will come with that mindset that I must decrease in importance, and that I am not that important. You know what the best man's job was in the Old Testament? The best man's job was simple. He would lead the bridegroom to the bride. He would lead the bridegroom to the bride. Once he had done that, his job was now complete, and he could step aside and rejoice in what God had brought together. That's all it was. Wouldn't it be absolutely crazy? Wouldn't it be foolish if the bridegroom if the bridegroom and the bride were together and the best man decided it was he, he, he wanted to be in that position now. What if he took over the wedding? There's a, there's a popular TV show that showed for many seasons and, and the, the main character was, he was completely known for being self-absorbed. He was very much thought so highly of himself. And in fact, one episode, one of the co-workers were getting, was getting married and this guy spent the entire episode making the day about him. And it was one of those things that it was funny at first until finally it's just sad and annoying. Like, dude, just go away. Move. And John the Baptist says, I'm moving. I'm getting out of the way. He says, I am not the bridegroom. I am the friend of the bride and my job is complete. We need to understand what John, what John tells us, what John declares, that he must increase and I must decrease. We are not as important as we think we are, and Jesus is more important than we could ever fathom. We need to stop making much of ourselves. And unfortunately, the place that, the church, that, that should display this the greatest is the place that sometimes shows it the least. We see this lived out in the church how often do people come to church with the mindset, how can y'all serve me? How often do we come judging the church on how things are done based on what we like and didn't like, based on how things were, how, whatever it may be, things that don't even affect the gospel? Francis Chan encountered a church member one time after preaching, a ser- after preaching a sermon at the end of the service, a church member came up to him and said, Pastor, I didn't like the worship today. 
And you know what Francis Chan responded back? He said, well, good thing it wasn't about you. And we, and we chuckle and we, we nervously laugh. But how true might that be for us? How true do we walk into the mindset thinking we are the missing key to unlocking God's kingdom? That we are the missing key to figuring out what this looks like. We put people in place that say, maybe this will do it or maybe that will do it. And we, we, we put all the weight on someone else. And we need to understand something. Everything doesn't rise and fall on the leadership of this church or any other individual in this church. In this church, everything rises and falls on Jesus and his cross. That's what it's about. Tosti Hinn, nephew of Benny Hinn, who's the televangelist and leader uh, of the prosperity gospel for a long time. Since, then, since in recent days, he's actually come out and uh, posted a video where he was, is recanting his belief in that. He's recanting uh, his following and his pro- proclamation of that. My prayer is that that is true, that he, that he, is, that he is true in that, he's honest and he's being uh, repentant in that. But Costi Hinn, who walked with his uncle, who, who did the ministry with his uncle, finally reached the point to where he said, I can't do this anymore. This is not the gospel. Left that ministry and, and, and walked away from that, beginning his own ministry. He says this, I don't come to church to hear about me. I'm sick of myself. I come to worship to hear about him. He must increase and I must decrease. Enough boyfriend worship, Taylor Swift songs you take and add Jesus to it. Sing the power, the glory, and the attributes of God. I think that's sufficient. Do you? That's what we have to focus on. We need to realize that we are just as guilty of this. We fall short of what this looks like. And we... As we look at every church that may walk into that, it's just as much for us to look and say, are we guilty of the same? Not only do our churches need to reflect this, our families need to reflect this. The question is, do we care more about making much of Jesus or making much of ourselves in our marriages? Do we care more about making much of Jesus or making much of ourselves in our families? Do we teach our children to make much of Jesus or do we push them to make much of themselves at the cost of Jesus? In sports, in school, in social lives, whatever it may be. Our jobs and our careers need to reflect this. Do we seek to get ahead in our work in our career, no matter what it takes? Do we separate our our career? Do we separate our job life from our Christian life? How many times do we choose our job over our calling as Christians? Because if we viewed our job as a mission field, it could cost us something. Can I tell you something? It cost John his job, what he did for a living. And John was completely okay with that. He was completely content with saying, I must decrease. And what? Jesus must increase. Catch that word there too. He says, I must. It is a necessity. It's not an optional thing. 
I must decrease. Jesus must increase. So it's not just about us decreasing. Though we are called to decrease in importance, the first insight of our takeaway, the second insight is this, that Jesus must increase in priority. I know we're having trouble with the screens right now, but but I want you to write that down. Jesus must increase in priority. Jesus must increase in priority. He has to increase in the priorities within our lives. It says in verse 33, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the, who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to the one, he, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal on this that God is true. Here's what we have in this, in this portion of Scripture now. We transition from the conversation to the commentary found in the conversation. And John, just as we looked at last week, just as we looked at last, uh, last Sunday in the beginning of, the chap- of chapter 3, we see a commentary where John begins to express what this really meant. These were John the Baptist's last words. John the Baptist, after this point, fades off the scene in the Gospel of John. We don't hear from him again. His last words are, I, he must increase, but I must decrease. And he must increase in priority. Look what he says in verse 31. He says, he who comes from above is above all. He says later, he says at the end of that verse, he who comes from heaven is above all. Why? Because, because he that has been sent by God is the Son of God, and he rightfully sits above everything. Write Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18 down. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18. Because Paul paints this picture of who Jesus really is when he declares, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And, and he is before all things. In him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. God is true and Jesus is truly God, is what John is declaring. That he who has come from above is above all. He, we, and the testimony is that God is true. And if God is true, then Jesus is truly God. And therefore, he is above all. He is before all. He sustains all. He is the one that must be preeminent, which means he must be of highest priority. He must be of highest importance. He must be of highest rank. He must be of highest privilege in our lives. Did any of us in here create anything? Y'all create anything lately? We may make something. We may discover something. We may invent something. But we, did, we haven't created something out of nothing. I'm glad I haven't because I'd mess it up. Can y'all just, like, I remember my paintings in art class in school 
If that's what creation would have looked like with me in charge, woo! Yikes. Any of us sustaining our very lives? Here's what I mean by that. Any of us willfully and willingly holding all the atoms together in our body so that we exist? Jesus is. And he's not just doing it for me. He's not just doing it for you. He's doing it for everyone and everything. If God himself were to remove his hand and say, I'm tired of sustaining all this, I'm done, and walk away, we would, we would cease to exist. Our atoms would fall apart. God created and sustains. I don't know about y'all, but that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty high priority in my life. Henry Drummond, the Scottish evangelist from the 19th century, says this, The pearl diver lives at the bottom of the ocean by means of the pure air conveyed to him from above. His life is entirely dependent on the breath from above him. We are down here like the diver to gather pearls for our master's crown. We're not doing it for us. We're doing it for our master. The source of our life comes from the life-giving spirit. Why do we try to make it seem like we're so important when Jesus is above everything? And can I just tell you and challenge you? We're not moving Jesus from, our low, from a low priority to a medium priority. We're not moving him in a list from number seven to number three, or maybe number seven or even number two. It's either Jesus above all or it's Jesus not at all. And that's what our lives declare. Our lives declare either Jesus above all or Jesus not at all. He must increase in priority. But the second thing he must increase in is this. Jesus must increase in authority. Write that down. This is the third, the third insight, the final insight into how we decrease and he increases. We decrease in importance. He increases in priority, but he has to also increase in authority in our lives. He must increase in authority in our lives. He says in verse 34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus, Jesus utters the words of God and has been given the Spirit of God without measure. Now, we need to read this as directly pertaining to Jesus. Some people want to take that and they want to jump straight to us and claim this for ourselves, that God has given us the Spirit without measure. And let me tell you, I believe completely that He has given us the fullness of His Spirit when we confess our sins, repent of our sins, and we believe and trust in faith, following and surrendering our lives to Him as King. He gives us the fullness of, of the Spirit of God to dwell within us so that we can now walk in victory. But that is only possible, that is only possible by understanding the truth that it happened to Jesus first, that Jesus came. He lived this life. He received the Spirit in fullness. And He alone has authority to give it to us. 
He came from above, and all things have been given here below. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, believe, does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on Him. We need to see He came from above, and the Father, out of His love, has given all things over to Him. You know what that means? John says later on in this gospel, he says, Jesus has the right to judge in the past judgment. Jesus has the right to give life. Jesus has the right to rule with authority. Jesus makes the call. He's the one that makes that, that decision. He's the one that empowers us, that works within us, that helps us decrease by Him increasing in priority and in authority. As we decrease in importance, Jesus increases in priority, resulting in our belief. Because we believe, we put our faith that He's higher, He's greater, He's above all. And He increases in authority, resulting in our obedience. And the two go hand in hand. The two go hand in hand. You, we must see that. Yes, we can obey God and still not believe in Him. But I do not believe that you can believe in God and not obey Him. He doesn't come to save us as Savior. He comes to save us as Lord over all. And He's commanded us to follow and to trust in Him. John chapter 14, verse 15, later on in the gospel, Jesus tells His disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. First John chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, says, my, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Catch that. Now, I've had conversations with people of other religions. I've had conversations with Mormons that came to my door, and they want to use this verse, and they want to use this passage to say, see, you are, you are told you have to obey. You are commanded. Salvation is by your obedience. No. Catch what John is saying. He's saying, if we love him, then we will do that. The command is the result of the love. The love is not the result of the command. The love is not the result of our obedience. We must follow Him, and until we follow Him, we will never fully obey Him. He has done this. What does He say in verse 3 of 1 John 2? He says, by this we know that we have come to know Him. We have come, past tense. It's already there. If we keep His commandments. It's not our determination of our salvation, but it does help us measure where we're at. And he is the master. We are the bondservant, willingly bound to trust and obey for the rest of our days. And the reality is this He will always be master above all. Jesus will always be master above all. Here's how kingdom economics, here's how kingdom mathematics work. Kingdom mathematics are a little different than our mathematics. In kingdom mathematics, when I decrease, guess what? Jesus increases. But when I increase, according to kingdom mathematics, I still decrease. 
It's not a flip-flop. It's not an either-or. It's not when we, get, when we increase, Jesus gets lower. That's nowhere near in Scripture. Jesus will never become lower because he is above all. So what do we, not, what do we have to do? We have to decrease and acknowledge Jesus where he rightfully deserves to be already as king over everything. So how do we respond? Well, I want to tell you the rest of John's story. John's story doesn't end right here, though we don't hear from him again in the Gospel of John. If you remember in verse 24 of this passage that we looked at, it says that he had not yet been thrown in prison. John the Baptist had not yet been thrown into prison, but that time would soon come. And there came a time in John's life Sometime between his imprisonment and his execution that I believe John questioned whether, his, whether he got the mathematics right or not. Did I really calculate this right? And, he, and we find the account in Luke, in the book of Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, it says this, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who has come? Are you the one who has come, or shall we look for another? And he answered him, Jesus answered him, after doing miracles right there in front of him. He answered, said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have, have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know what John, we know what Jesus is replying to John? As John has asked the question and he's wrestled with these, and we all have to wrestle with this, are we getting this right? Are we doing what we're called to do? And John has that moment where he says, I just, I want to make sure. And he sends his disciples, and you know what Jesus' reply is? Jesus replies, I am increasing. You have done well. And you know what, from that moment forward, I believe John had no problem going to his death so that Jesus could increase, understanding that he had to decrease. The only way we get to see Jesus increase and be part of it is if we decrease. So how do we respond? We have to decrease ourselves. We have to quit coming with the mindset we have to quit approaching things with a mindset that maybe I know what's best. God, I've got this, right? I've got this. I've got my marriage. I've got my kids. I've got my work. I've got this taken care of. I've got this church, God. Don't worry about it. We've got to quit thinking that we're God's gift to humanity. No, we decrease in importance Jesus increases in priority and authority. And the only way to do that is to repent and to believe. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us in just a second. Our band's going to come up in just a minute when I pray. And, and they're going to do the song that we did right before the sermon. They're going to do the entire song. Can I challenge you? Take that time. Don't rush out of here. Don't feel like we've got, you've got somewhere you need to be. Can we just stop? as a church for just a moment and decrease ourselves and ask God, what do you have for me? We need to repent of our pride and our desire for importance. We need to repent of our arrogance and our fear and our grasp for anything that we can get a hold of. 
And we need to humble ourselves before the one who is above all and trust in him and him alone. Michaela Rickles, she's on staff here as an ministry assistant. She's helping at a D now just 10 miles down the road where 170 students gathered this weekend to make much of Jesus. I texted her and asked her, just said, told her I was praying for her, asked her how the weekend was going, and this was her reply back to me. It says, well, worship went over an hour and a half than it was supposed to because no one wanted to leave. She said 170 students at the altar pouring their hearts out and lots and lots of worshiping. So in other words, really, really good. Can I ask a question? Why does that only happen every so often? Why don't we as a church every week, week in, week out, make much of Jesus? So what I would challenge you to do is we sing this song. I would challenge you not to stand right when we sing. I challenge you to get alone with God right where you're at. If you want to turn and kneel at your chair right there, that's fine. If you need to get up, my prayer would be that it would be, get, be, it would be to get up and move towards this altar. And if you want to make this an altar, but can we deny ourselves? Can we decrease in importance and confess our need to trust in Him? Let's pray. Father God, we give you this time. I give you the message I believe you have desired for your people to hear. God, we now give that over to you. God, I give them over to you, God, and I ask that you would speak to their hearts, and I pray that you would stir within them the grace and the desire, the power to walk in obedience, obeying the truth that we have to decrease in importance. Let us repent of any pride within our lives. Let us repent of anywhere that we feel that we have been need importance. God, if we feel like we don't have anything to repent of, then God, I believe we're probably making too much of ourselves. But I have to, I have to wake up every day. God, it's not about me. It's all about you. Because if I don't, God, I know that I'm going to try to take it over, and it's not mine to take over. It's all yours. So we give you this time, God, move in our hearts. Let us not move too quickly to try to get out of here, to try to avoid what you may be trying to do in our lives. God, may we give you all the praise and glory. God, if anyone needs to, to talk, God, I pray that they would know that I'm down here willing to, to just come to the cross with them. I need the cross just as much as they do. God, be glorified in